Let's pray together. Father, that's our confession as we come to You, our, our great God and King. We confess our need for You. We thank You for Your mercy in exposing our need, not to wound us, but to bring healing to those places that are broken. We confess that we far too often uh, cover up our, our true need. We fake it, but with you, our great physician, the, the one who can actually do something about our broken parts, we confess that. And we receive by your grace the healing that comes by your Holy Spirit. We pray for ourselves this morning that our hearts would be soft in your hands and, and malleable and, and movable, that you would do what's necessary to, to bring transformation and healing here in us. We ask this together. We pray for our brothers and sisters who already this morning have begun worshiping you and, and opening up your word to learn what you have for them. We pray that their hearts would be receptive, that those uh, faithful brothers and sisters who are opening up God's Word in preaching and who are opening up God's Word in Sunday school classes and who are gathering together in small groups to pray for one another, that your Spirit would be present there and that you would equip your church to serve the people in our own city. And for our brothers and sisters around the globe who began hours ago, in some places due to, uh, under great persecution and in silence and in quiet places, so where it's not safe to, to publicly follow Jesus, I, we pray that we would just join our small voice of praise to that loud chorus that began earlier and that would continue on through the day that you might receive glory and praise due your name. Would you help us this morning to be encouraged, to be equipped for all that you have for us? We thank you that we can come boldly before the throne of grace with confidence because, as we just sang, we are hidden in Christ Jesus. So speak to us now through your word. Help us, Spirit of God, to understand and move in us for your glory and for our good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Good morning. Grateful to worship with you today. Um, you can grab your Bibles as we begin. Um, we'll open up Luke's Gospel again. If you need a Bible, please raise your hand and someone from our strike team can get one to you. Um, as you're turning to Luke chapter 4, I'd like to start out this morning a little differently, a brief history lesson that I hope will help us understand the text a little today. On June 6th, 1944... U.S., British, and Canadian armed forces initiated what was known as Occupation Overlord and attempted to establish a foothold into Western Europe, which had been occupied by Hitler and Nazi Germany in what we now know as World War II. Multiple troop transports with thousands of soldiers and hundreds of vehicles and pieces of equipment and munitions had been prepared to land on the coast of Normandy, France. The Prime Minister of Great Britain, Winston Churchill, proposed that in order to stop Hitler from taking over the whole of Europe, 
And in order to stop Hitler from taking over the rest of the world, quite possibly, that they had to take the fight to him. And so historians are are pretty agreed that at the time, military strategists were, were in agreement they were convinced that if they could get an entry point into Western Europe, if they could gain a, an entry point, a doorway, a foothold back into Europe, if they could do that, then the Allied forces from the West and Russian forces from the East, that they would win the war. If they could just get that one first step, that the victory would surely be theirs. They were convinced of this. And so it would only be a matter of time before they would have victory even if that victory was not yet fully realized. I'm going to stop our history lesson there, and and you might be asking, that's cool, thank you for telling me about D-Day, the invasion of Normandy, I read that somewhere. Why the history lesson? I think there's a picture here, when we look at D-Day and we look at World War II, in what we talk about here a lot at River City, when we talk about the already and the not yet. Something that is presently complete and sure, and at the same time, something that is also to be fulfilled in the future. You've probably heard us use that language here at River City, the already and the not yet. Because there is an already and a not yet reality to our lives as we follow Jesus. There's an already not yet reality of what it means to be and live and work and exist in the kingdom of God. We have been made righteous in Christ Jesus. Here's an example. We've been made righteous in Christ Jesus. It is a present tense reality for people who are followers of Jesus. And we are being made righteous as the Spirit of God works in us. That's called sanctification. We are both holy and we are being made holy. Already and not yet. Here's another one. In Christ, we are made new creations. And we wait, Scripture says, in eager expectations that when Christ comes again, He will fully restore what has been broken by sin and will make all things new. We have been made new creations and Christ is coming again and when He does, He will fully make all things new already and not yet. Here's another one. Christ has defeated Satan, sin, and death. Done. There is already current victory over sin, Satan, and death. Jesus assured it with his death on the cross and his glorious resurrection. And Jesus' ministry and message is a kingdom, excuse me, um, of, of his coming kingdom tells us that we are also awaiting the full and final realization of that reality. That when Christ comes again, all of sin and Satan and hell itself will be thrown into the lake of fire and destroyed and forever. And so there's this already victory and this not yet full victory to be experienced. This is the already and not yet of the kingdom of God. And so when Jesus' message is proclaimed, he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. The, the, the kingdom and, and the rule and reign of God is now, and the full re- realization of the promises of that kingdom are still to come. It, it's, it's both and, and. It's, it's an already and a not yet. So this is the, 
the already and not yet of the kingdom of God. Now, we're only going to look at four verses today, verses 41 through 44. And this is the first time that we hear in Luke the words, the kingdom of God. So we're going to talk a little bit about the kingdom of God today, how we see Jesus operating in this kingdom and what it means for us as citizens of this kingdom as well. Let's read together uh, Luke 4, verses 41 through 44. Excuse me, we'll read 42 through 44. Sorry, if if I wrote 41 up there, I... It's a mistake. 42. Let's read this together. And when it was day, he departed. This is Jesus. He departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. This is God's word for us today. Now we're going to look at these verses through this lens, this already not yet lens of the kingdom of God. Jesus says it in verse 43, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. Now, as a concept, as a theological idea, the kingdom of God is too huge to cover in its entirety, in one sermon, uh, let alone from these few verses. But I want us to look at the idea of the kingdom of God through this lens of the already and the not yet. There is a present already reality and completeness and victory now as we look at the kingdom of God. And there is a not yet reality. The fullness of that kingdom is still to be revealed when Christ comes again and finally does make all things new. And in this passage, there are two things we see in Jesus' words and actions that tell us something of a life lived as a citizen in the kingdom of God. And those two things will be our two main points today. There's two of them. First, kingdom unction. And second, kingdom urgency. And before I explain what those words mean, particularly the first one, which none of you know, um, before we get to those points, I, I want to sp- just speak briefly about the kingdom of God broadly. What did Jesus mean when he said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the people who would come to see him? As I mentioned earlier, this is the first time in Luke where we have read those words, the phrase, the kingdom of God. Now that phrase, the kingdom of God, shows up 31 times in Luke's gospel. 31 times. 29 of those times, it comes directly from Jesus' mouth. He's preaching and teaching and talking about the kingdom of God. And the other two times are in reference to those people who were with Jesus, who were watching and waiting and asking questions about when will the kingdom of God be here? When will it be revealed? And what's interesting is that every time Jesus speaks of the kingdom of God, his listeners are confused a little bit. They're looking for an earthly kingdom, a a king, a, a physical, geopolitical, national kingdom. And Jesus isn't speaking of a kingdom like that. When Jesus speaks of the kingdom, he's not talking about earthly territory. 
He doesn't say anything about Rome or, or the Persian Empire or a Jewish nation state. He isn't talking about a finite, earthly, geographical kingdom. When Jesus is speaking of the kingdom of God, he's talking about divine authority, kingly rule, not merely over national borders, but over all of creation itself. And we see his kingdom authority on display, don't we? Last week, as we read, Jesus demonstrates his authority over the physical, where he heals the sick, and authority over creation in Luke chapter 8, where Jesus calms a storm, even the wind and waves obey him. We see Jesus exert his authority over the spiritual, where he casts out demons, as we read last week as well, as, as he proclaims healing and forgiveness of sins, which we'll read about upcoming in Luke chapter 5. When Jesus talked about the kingdom, when he talked about the kingdom of God, some people were amazed and some people were angry because in both cases, their own visions of what the kingdom should be like, what God's rule and reign should be like, their picture of the kingdom was just too small. And over and over and over again, Jesus is expanding the view of anyone who will listen to him. Listen, he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. This is what it looks like. He says, repent. The the holiness of God, the holiness of our king is established. He says, look and see what the kingdom does. The, The power of the kingdom of God is on display as he heals the sick and makes the lame walk. And he says, follow me. The kingdom of God is near. Jesus is helping them get their minds around the idea that his kingdom is a different kind of kingdom, and that his kingdom is already at hand. He's the herald, the announcer, the representative of the kingdom of God. And here we see the first reality that Jesus is kind of walking in, this idea of kingdom unction. I, I love the word unction. It, it's an old English word. I, I, one of the meanings of the word unction is, is anointing usually with oil. Oil poured over the head was a, was a ceremonial or symbolic blessing or honor. When, when Samuel proclaims that young David is to be the next king of Israel, the Scriptures tell us that he pours oil over the head of David. Unction means anointing. But unction also means a, a deeply emotional or heightened expressiveness If I preach today with a lot of energy and excitement and passion, you might say that I'm preaching with a great deal of unction. Now, I don't expect you to incorporate the word unction into your everyday vocabulary. You can if you want to. Press your friends, find ways to slip it into conversation, use it as scrabble tiles, right? Hit the double word score. But I find it helpful here for for two reasons, both one, one, its meanings related to what we see in Jesus, uh, what he's saying here, kind of help relate to both the words unction and urgency, um, uh, both start with you, which is helpful for me uh, to remember what's happening here. But I also see both of these things playing out in real time, the, both the anointing and the, the passion that Jesus is operating in seem to fit into this, this definition of, of unction. So there you go. Jesus is operating with a kingdom unction. And here's, here's what I mean. If you remember, just a few chapters ago, Jesus 
is publicly anointed by the Holy Spirit at his baptism. This is a blessing and an anointing moment that happens in the life and ministry of Jesus. It was the inauguration of his earthly ministry. And from that point forward, Jesus began this slow and intentional walk, which eventually led him to the cross, where he would perfectly satisfy God's justice and perfectly display God's love. That path to the cross started with the blessing, the anointing of Jesus in his baptism. Jesus reads the scroll of Isaiah, outlining, well, this is what the kingdom of God looks like. This is what the ministry of the kingdom looks like. Healing for the broken, recovery of sight for those who are both physically and spiritually blind, that he is the one to bring this about. And that he exercises that authority by healing the sick. He proves it, right? Healing the sick, raising the dead to life, giving sight to the blind, offering forgiveness as only God can. Jesus is operating with a Holy Spirit anointing, and we'll see that happen over and over and over again in the ministry of Christ. Last week we read from a few verses back that when the word got out that Jesus had healed Peter's mother-in-law, people from all over came to see him. Verses 40 and 41 tell us that people brought their friends and family who were sick and Jesus laid hands on them, healed them, and cast out demons. And apparently this was a lot of people. If you look at verse 42, it says, And when it was day, it's likely... It's likely that Jesus' ministry to the people lasted well into the night. Preaches at the synagogue, goes to Peter's mother-in-law's house, heals her. They have a meal, and just then the, the neighborhood shows up, and people just keep coming. And we don't see a break between verse 41 and 42. We just see, and then it was day, or and when it was day. Possibly all night long. People just kept coming to Jesus. Perhaps that time in the wilderness that Jesus had just experienced was preparing for times like this. Non-stop. Let's keep reading verse 42. And when it was day, he departed them and went to a desolate place. That word desolate is the same word that we read at the beginning of chapter 4 when it says Jesus went out into the wilderness. Same Greek word. And Luke doesn't say this, but if you look at Mark's account of this passage, that Jesus went there to pray alone in the quiet. This is another thing we'll see as we see Jesus engage more and more in in healing and preaching and this ministry that seems to just keep going as Jesus often pulls away to a quiet place after a season of caring for people to rest to commune with His heavenly Father, to pray, to be renewed by the Spirit of God, which prompts a question for me and maybe for you. How do you tend to rest and recharge? I I, I think that we too often trust in counterfeit rest, things we say are restful or we're resting, but we're not. We're just occupying our minds temporarily. Sometimes we do need to unplug when we're feeling overwhelmed, that's for sure. But how often do we, especially when we are spent, lean into the only real source of our strength? How often do we actually pull away from all the noise, not just change the channel on the noise that we have coming at us, 
or even sometimes, by God's grace, pull away from the noise in our own heads and just sit quietly with our Father, with His Word open and allow the Spirit to comfort and teach us. Jesus regularly pulled away to spend time with God the Father and to be renewed by the Holy Spirit. How much more do we, who have the same Father and the same Spirit dwelling within, need that kind of rest? It doesn't mean that life in the kingdom isn't tough. It doesn't mean that we don't get beat up or tired. But it means that we know the source of our calling and we know the source of our strength. The end of verse 42 tells us, The people sought Him and came to Him and would have kept Him from leaving them. I find that a very interesting commentary on the thoughts of the people. Their intention was to keep Jesus from leaving. No, no, stay with us. You've done some really good stuff here. We want more of that. Don't go. They would have kept Him from leaving them. He could not get a moment of peace. And every mom in the room knows exactly what I'm talking about, right? You go to a quiet corner of the house for just five minutes. You you close the the bedroom door, or even better, you go like into the bathroom and close that door. And it's not long. It's like, what, 30 seconds, 60 seconds, 45 seconds, and the tiny fingers are creeping through underneath, right? Or you have the little, mommy hit me. Mom, they hit me. They took my thing. Not one moment of peace. You know what I'm talking about. I asked my wife, I said, is this accurate? And she's like, come on now, you live here. Of course it's accurate. (laughs) They were so focused on their own circumstances and their own perspective, because it's so different than our children, right, that they failed to understand what Jesus was all about, what he was doing, what his purpose was. They would have kept him from leaving. And look at Jesus' response. And this is where we see that second component, not just the unction, the anointing of Jesus, but the urgency. Look at verse 43. Jesus says to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well. I must. There's a spirit-enabled purpose here, an urgency. This can't wait. You people, I love you. You don't understand. I must. Go to other towns as well. And and what is he doing as he goes? Preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. That phrase, preach the good news, is the Greek word euangelizo. It's where we get the English word evangelism. Good news. He's preaching the good news of the kingdom. The reality of the kingdom of God is coming near. It it is good news. It's gospel news. And Jesus says, I must preach this gospel, this good news of the coming kingdom to other towns as well. I must. There's an urgency to it. It it tells us something about Jesus' purpose and the expansion of the gospel message of the kingdom. It also tells us that the, the gospel message is not a static message. The gospel message is not restricted to only be preached in a particular geography or to a particular ethnicity or to a particular class of people. It is not bound by culture or politics or geopolitical borders. It is bigger than that. It must go out. You don't get to keep the gospel and the message of Jesus in a nice little box on your shelf. We can't keep it to ourselves. It must 
expand. It must be preached. The good news of the kingdom of God cannot be hoarded. It must be made known. That's what Jesus is getting at here. And in verse 43, look at the end of verse 43. He says, um, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other, other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. From Jesus' baptism in Luke 3, right up here till the end of Luke 4, we see this unpacking of Jesus' purpose to usher in the kingdom of God. Jesus is initiating the already part of the kingdom of God. So as we read, I'm asking these questions of myself and now of you. Do we operate with this same sense of urgency? Do, Do we... Are we comfortable keeping our, our understanding and our life in the kingdom just our, to ourselves, in our houses, on our shelves, in our pockets? Or do we feel that burning of purpose, that God has put us in a place around people that haven't yet heard or haven't yet believed or haven't yet experienced the good news of the kingdom of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ invading their lives? Maybe you noticed as you came in today uh, that the wall over here looks different. Maybe you didn't. By the way, the wall over here is different. A handful of people dedicated a whole bunch of hours this week to make that happen. Something we've been talking about for a while. It's almost complete. It's like 99% uh, done. Um, But Kyle Burns and Liz Grandin and uh, Penny Burns helped with this. And uh, Nathan and Marissa Jensen and Whitney Friesen. I think I got everybody. Um, helped put this thing on the wall for us. One, we had a big gray spot on the wall we thought we should do something with. And, and two, oh, Nathaniel Navratil helped design the, the imagery. that they, It's all painted on the wall. It, it's awesome. Come take a look at it later. But the reason this is here is because we wanted to be reminded as we gather to worship Jesus of the mission field to which we've all been called for as long as we live here. Now, this is just a geographical map, but it represents thousands of people from all different backgrounds, all different beliefs, people who grew up here and people who've moved here from either another part of North Dakota or from around the globe for work or for study. And we are called to go from this small city here, this space that we gather, to that place, to that mission field, and beyond with the same message, the good news of the gospel of the kingdom of God. This is our part of the already kingdom of God. We who have faith in Jesus are now citizens of this kingdom. Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, he, Jesus, has delivered us from the dominion of darkness, the domain of darkness, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Your spiritual citizenship is now different. If you had a passport for your spiritual reality, it's different. It now says, kingdom of God, which makes sense. Have you ever traveled abroad and you come home and then the person who's looking at the thing, how long were you gone? Do you have anything to declare? And then they're like, I'm just glad to be home from wherever I am. And they go, ka-chunk, ka-chunk. And then they hand you your passport back and what do they say? Welcome home. It makes sense then when we see in the scriptures that when we die and we go to be with him forever, what's the call for the believer? Well done, good and faithful servant. 
welcome home, welcome into your Father's rest. It's because our citizenship is now different. We're no longer citizens of the kingdom of darkness. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. And we who have faith in Jesus are called to follow Jesus in this mission in the already. In John 20, uh, you can go there if you want, but in John 20, the disciples are huddled together in the upper room. It's three days past Jesus being crucified, and they're already freaking out because they can't find his body. And John tells us that Jesus appears to them in the room. He says, peace be with you, which is probably important because they were probably freaking out. And then he says this, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. In Matthew 28, we read of what's often uh, referred to as the Great Commission. Jesus says to his disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, he says. Therefore, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. His mission is our mission because his kingdom is now our kingdom. the reality of living in the already kingdom. We have all the blessings and fullness and reality of belonging to Christ and we are welcomed into his mission of preaching and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. And the kingdom of God is also a not yet. Remember, this, while this kingdom to which we belong is and we proclaim is right now, it's a present reality, it also exists in a future, glorious, not yet. Allied troops stormed the beaches of Normandy in France on July 6, 1944. And as I said earlier, if they could gain a foothold into Europe, they were confident that they would ultimately defeat Nazi Germany. And history now tells us the whole story. Hitler was defeated. And the day that the German forces offered their unconditional surrender was May 8th, 1945. It's known as VE Day, Victory in Europe Day. And it came 11 months after Normandy. 11 months. 11 months of fighting and battles and sacrifice. But the reality is the war was over on July 6, 1944. But there were going to be many battles between that day and victory to solidify the reality that the war was over. And here Jesus is preparing God's people to understand in a very short time, if I can, if you'll allow me, Jesus was, if you'll allow me to use Jesus' life and talk about it in terms of World War II, Jesus was saying to his people at the time, anyone who would listen to him, in a very short time, I am going to storm the beach of the kingdom of darkness. I will crush sin and death under my feet for good. I am now ushering in the kingdom of God. I will establish the rule and reign of God over and against the counterfeit rule of Satan that he has attempted to exercise since the garden. And as Acts 1.8 tells us, and you will be my witnesses, Jesus says, All of you who follow after me, you will bear witness about me, about the good news of the gospel of the kingdom. 
to Jerusalem and all Judea and then Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is your charge, he says, as citizens of the kingdom of God, living in the already victory and not yet glory of the kingdom of God. Preach the good news of the kingdom to all places as God calls you. And there's a promise here. In Matthew 16, Jesus affirms the confession of one of his disciples. It's interesting. If you look back just a few verses earlier, when Jesus commands the demon to come out of the man earlier in Luke chapter 4, he makes a good confession. I know who you are, Jesus of Nazareth. You're the Christ. Jesus silences him. And here in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus asks his disciples, Who do you guys say that I am? People think I'm Elijah or one of the prophets. or Who do you say that I am? And you know what Peter says? Peter says, you're the Christ. (laughs) You're the son of the living God. And Jesus says this, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And he says, Peter, I tell you, you're Peter. On this rock, I will build my church. And then he says this, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So here in this already, not yet, of the kingdom, we see Jesus preaching and healing and doing ministry. And and after his death and resurrection, he sets his church loose to live in the reality of the already and not yet kingdom with that same anointing and that same urgency. The reality is the battles will be many. The casualties may be many, but the victory is sure The promise of Christ is that the gates of hell will not stand up to the advancement of the church preaching the good news of the rule and reign of Christ. That's the promise. The gates of hell will not prevail. So, for those of you who wonder if you were living outside the kingdom of God right now, your citizenship is still... still in the kingdom of darkness, outside of the rule and reign of Christ. We come into fellowship. We come into citizenship in this new kingdom through faith in Jesus, not by our own doing, not by figuring out all the right answers, through faith in Jesus. In Him we find forgiveness. In Him we find renewal as He makes our dead hearts come alive. We believe by faith in Jesus as our Savior and as our King. And for those of you who are in Christ Jesus, can I call you to arms? You who are blood-bought citizens of a new kingdom, let us humbly and with confidence take up the proclamation of the gospel, the good news of the kingdom with intentionality and with urgency, remembering that we are sent by Jesus himself that we are filled with the power of the Holy Spirit to go into all the places He's called us, to to storm the gates of hell and and go into the dark places the kingdom of darkness wants to have a a foothold in. And as my uh, friend and uh, brother, Pastor Steve Treichler at Hope Community Church in Twin Cities says, go into the kingdom of darkness and trash the joint. Confident that the victory in Christ has already been One, we can't lose. We we can't lose. 
So let's follow Jesus to all these other towns. Let's, let's follow him and follow his uh, example of proclaiming the already of the kingdom of God that has come in power and sharing the sure hope of the not yet but glorious kingdom yet to come. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you. We thank you. That at the right time, when we weren't seeking you, when we were powerless, at the right time, Jesus Christ, God incarnate, came to rescue and save lost sinners. We thank you that you have established your rule and your reign and have welcomed us into your kingdom by the blood of the Son. Father, for any of us here who still find our citizenship in the domain of darkness, I pray that you would open our eyes and revive dead hearts to faith in Jesus, even this morning. And for those of us who maybe for a long time have found our citizenship in the kingdom, would you renew our vision of that kingdom? Reminding us of the, the, the Spirit of God that lives and dwells within And the power of the gospel that has transformed us, that then flows from our lips to the ears of, of many others who need to hear the hope of our victorious King. And I pray you would keep in front of our eyes, especially when we are weary a clear and glorious picture of the not yet so that we can agree with, with Paul that our, that our present sufferings, the battles we're in now as citizens of the kingdom are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed. So it makes all of this in the now worth it. Would you help us? Would you encourage us, especially when we're at our weakest and our lowest, knowing that you're with us always, even to the very end of the age. Stir in our hearts a, an urgency as messengers of the kingdom. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.